This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 230 for Monday, April 25th, 2011. Christian Huygens. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Doing really well. So this is the third live show that we've done. And by live, I mean we're doing it as a Google Hangout. So, uh, you know, about once a week, we all connect as a hangout and eight of our closest friends can watch as we record the show. We typically uh, answer some questions beforehand and stick around and answer questions afterwards. So it's quite a lot of fun. And so if you're listening to this episode and you want to get involved, probably the best way is to get a Google Plus account and then add me and or Pamela as friends. If you don't have a G Plus account, then I would suggest you email me, uh, probably me, not Pamela, uh, FraserKane at gmail.com and say, give me a Google Plus invite, please. I will send you the invite and then also add you to the circle so that you can get notified when we do these live recordings. And hopefully down the road, they'll add more people to the uh, to the hangout. So we'll have more people being able to listen. And we are working on figuring out how to do things like share it through Ustream via Cam Twist or something like that. We're just not quite there yet. And nor is our bandwidth. So yeah, well, this was just so easy, so convenient. Let's, you know, uh, we can kind of stick around and chat with people. So, you know, if people want us to do more of this, we'll figure out some long-term solution. I just, I like the ones that don't require a lot of effort and expense, <laughs> which is what this does. Um, okay. All right. Well, so now we finish our trilogy of Saturnian astronomers and missions with a look at the Dutch astronomer and mathematician Christian Huygens. It was Huygens who discovered Titan and figured out what Saturn's rings really are. So it makes sense that a probe landing on the surface of Titan was named after him. All right, Pamela, so this is great. I mean, we did the, the first episode we did on Cassini, the guy who uh, did some of the best observations of, of Saturn. Next, we did the Cassini mission, or the Cassini-Huygens mission. And so, I guess, part three, we're going to talk about Huygens, the astronomer. So, exactly. where do you want to start? Well, I, I think the best place to start is by saying that astronomer really doesn't characterize him. Christian Huygens is is a truly frightening intellect that basically got curious and just did stuff. So he did advanced mathematics where the only thing that seemed to limit him is he's doing a lot of his mathematics work just a few years before calculus was invented. So he tried to do things like calculate what is the shape of a hanging rope and couldn't quite get there because you need calculus. He did astronomy where he actually built all of his own lenses and he devised new and better ways to grind and polish lenses. He was a physicist working to try and solve all sorts of interesting mechanics problems. He was also one of the people who worked on designing early clocks, where he didn't build the clocks himself. He hired other people to do that. But he was the person who came up with the idea for the pendulum clock and thought that maybe that would be one of the ways to solve the latitude problem. Now, can we put him, place him sort of in the annals of 
of astronomers, you know, like who were his contemporaries? He, he was, was he sort of after Galileo before he, he Hubble? He was after Galileo sort of contemporary with Newton in terms of both of them were alive at the same time, but they were different ages. Um, he was protege may be too strong a word, but Descartes used to take him under his shoulder and watch his mathematical upbringing. So he had these amazing mentors. He worked with Fresnel. So if you've ever driven a motorhome or a giant bus with one of those strange textured things on the back that magnifies, that's a Fresnel lens. And he worked with Fresnel on a variety of different projects. So he was right there in the heart of the scientific revolution and um, was working as hard as he could to keep up. And he built on Newton's formula of F equals MA to figure out he's the inventor of centripetal force, which has led all of us to enjoy XKCD all the more. Right. So he, after Galileo, uh, you know, what about some of the other astronomers in that time, right? Like Copernicus, after Copernicus? He's after Copernicus. He he's in those early ages of telescopes. Right. So he and Cassini were contemporary of one another. Right. Okay. He was contemporary with Hooke, who was one of the observers of transits, um, and another person into clocks. Right. Yeah. He he was just in those early days where telescopes were new and people were mostly getting their names known for what they did in physics. Right. And so then, where did he get his start? He's he he's Dutch, right? But um, but what was his sort of early life? He he had the benefit of being the son of a mathematician who was friends with uh, Rene Descartes. So growing up, he he had all of these amazing people constantly in and out of his life, and he was also from a wealthy enough family that he had private tutors until he was sixteen. And he he transitioned from private tutoring, which included Descartes looking over his shoulder, to then attending the University of Leiden and then going on to the College of Orange and Breda. He, he studied mathematics. He studied law. He was your quintessential Renaissance man in time and education. And so then when did the big astronomy discoveries really kind of kick in? So he, he was born in 1629, went to university young, got involved on the politics side of things before he actually turned to doing science actively. It was in 1657 that he did his first publication, which wasn't astronomy, it was probability theory. This is where he just, he, he was someone who could name drop anyone. He uh, was encouraged by Blaise Pascal to look at probability and to write the very first book ever on probability theory. He then went on in 59 to discover centripetal force, not discover, but to derive the mathematical formulation for what are the forces on an object that's getting twirled around your head on a string? He then got distracted by light and in the late 70s worked on writing his treaty on light. So he's just bouncing all over the place. But it was his engagement in light and optics that all tied in with what he was doing with astronomy. I think where his name most closely gets tied to the mission is because he was the one who discovered that Titan exists. He's the one that found that happy little moon that kind of got us all started. And the reason he was able to discover it was he was using some of the best optics in the world because he figured out 
more effective ways to to grind glass. And he was also the first one to figure out what the rings are, even though everyone argued with him because they couldn't see it because their lenses weren't as good as his. Now, what was his setup? I mean, you know, many of these famous astronomers were all set up at their university or, you know, they had some rich patron and they had some, you know, setup. Did he, where was he working out of? Well, he worked both out of The Hague, and then later on uh, he went to France, then was able to return to, to The Hague later on. And But was he backed by some kind of institution, I guess, is what I'm, or was he doing it solo, you know? No, no one did anything solo. His life, he was mostly tied to different royal societies, so he kind of had royal backing. These were the days when scientists were the pets of kings. Science wasn't a necessity, but it was an amusement. And it's kind of odd to think that you'd have the court jester and the court astronomer side by side, but in some ways you did. <laughs> so it, it's because of him. He was first involved in the Royal Society in England. And after seeing their setup, when he was invited to the Royal Society of France, he helped them set up that Royal Society and get that organization going. So then let's talk about those those big discoveries that he made that really relate to the, the trilogy that we've done so far, which is that discovery of Titan and and really his comprehension of what the rings really are. So what what were sort of the 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 observations and stuff he made leading up to that? So back in the 1650s, he was grinding his own lenses. He was making his own telescopes, and as he's making his observations, documenting day by day the changing alignment of the rings of Saturn. This is one of the most amazing things is when Galileo looked at Saturn, he, he saw at one point it looked like Saturn had a pair of handles. Yeah, at ears. another point it looked like, yeah. And then at another point it looked like the rings had gone away. Well, what happens is over time, the inclination, the angle at which we're able to observe the rings changes. And with his superior optics, Huygens was able to see the angle of the rings change to see that they were rings not attached to the planet and to see this little blob of light that turned out to be the moon Titan orbiting around and around near the rings. And and I guess orbiting sort of on the same plane as the rings, right? Yeah, exactly. So this little moon, as it's orbiting around the rings, it appeared to stay in the same plane. It just appeared to bounce back and forth parallel to the rings in the sky. And this led him to understand that this was something orbiting, just like the Galilean moons orbited Jupiter. This was something orbiting Saturn. So he made those observations, saw Titan on the same, you know, plane of the rings, and really, I guess, what, made some observations over time and just saw that... He saw that the angle of the rings was changing, and he was able to figure out that there's a planet with inclined rings that, as it goes around and around the sun, just like our poles maintain where they point relative to the stars. We have the North Pole in a constant place. Well, Saturn's rings maintain their tilt relative to the stars, allowing us to see a constantly changing angle on the rings. I mean, we see the pictures now. We see the pictures from Hubble. We see the pictures from Cassini. And it's obvious. You look at it and go, yeah. you know, those are clearly a big ring. You know, you might not know what it is, but at least the shape of what that is is very obvious to us. But you can just imagine the leap that they would have to make, especially, you know, 
with how terrible the optics were back then, you could just barely make out that, I mean, like in my telescope, when I look at Saturn, if the ring plane is really at its big angle, I can just barely see the the gap on either side. And, you know, I'm looking with, a, you know, a fairly, I'm sure a telescope that's many times better than, than anything they ever had. So I just can't imagine, you know, if you look back, like, do you remember when we played around with the Galileo scope at the AAS? You know, you could just make out these little moons poking out of the side of, of Jupiter and some bands. And that was kind of it. So it's just amazing that they would make this cognitive leap. It really had to be someone sitting there, you know, Huygens sitting there looking at this, at, at what he was, you know, seeing in the telescope and going, what am I looking at? And, and running through the ideas in his mind. I, it's just, it's astonishing that they came to that realization so early on, you know, later on it would have been obvious, but in the beginning, yeah, just amazing. Well, and one of the things that the poor guy ran into is he reported his discovery of Titan and he reported his ring theory and everyone's like, no, <laughs> sorry, dude, we just don't believe you. And he had to wait for other people to build comparable telescopes before people started to believe him. And this was one of his frustrations. And it was actually, he was able to figure out that people didn't have telescopes as good as his by who denied his ring theory. <laughs> And, uh, That's awesome. Yeah. So it, it was just one of those things where it took a while for people to believe him and to confirm his results because he was just too good at what he did. Wow. Okay. So, so he made this announcement, you know, as you said, you know, involved in various royal societies. That was, I guess, the way that those, that news sort of percolated out. What did he work on after that? Well, so he was writing books. He was working on actually clocks next. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you're trying to understand orbital periods. You're trying to understand all these different kinematic problems. He was referred to as a mechanicist in some instances. And to understand all of these things, you really need good timekeeping. And these were in the days where we didn't have good clocks. And being someone that thought in terms of force, thought in terms of energy, he figured out, oh, pendulum clock. And this was back in the days when people still, even in the field of science, had the idea that if you pull a pendulum back even further, it will take it longer to get from the high point on one side and it swing to the high point in the other than if you only pull it back a little. And it turns out that it that's that's just not how it works. And so he was able to figure out how to relate all of these things with the periods of, of different pendulums. And that was kind of cool. So pendulum research? Pendulum research. What else? I, I'm yeah. probably far more excited about that than other people. Then Titan, discovery of Titan and Saturn's rings? Well, yeah, no, Titan was way, way cooler. I didn't know you were such a big pendulum clock fan. No, I'm not. Yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah. Pendulum. No, but it's a physics interesting physics challenge. No, I know. You, it, it I would, love I take the kids, we go to the we go to the the park and I take the kids and I and I ask them not to pump the swings, but I will hold them up to my face with their feet straight out, <laughs> right? And then I yep. let them go, and I and I and I'll show them how I will, you know, won't move my face as they swing back because it's impossible for them to kick me in the face. You totally trust your children. They, well, as soon as they pump, I I move my face out of the way because I see that, that this is about to backfire. You know but, they're out to but get Just you. in general. But no, no, no. And there's a great, this amazing clock in Vancouver in the HSBC building. They've got this beautiful, huge pendulum clock. Like the pendulum itself is, I don't know, 
you know, 10 meters tall, 15 meters tall, and, and probably two meters on a side. It's quite amazing. This huge pendulum that swings back and forth. And you can kind of see it working in the same way. So anyway, pendulums. I, uh, what do you know? I love pendulums too. All right, let's move on. <laughs> right. So, yes, he did pendulums, which was kind of totally awesome. He went on. I, so if you think about it, all of this kind of builds. He's like, okay, I'm doing astronomy. I'm going to figure out how to make better lenses. Okay, I need better timekeeping to do better astronomy. So let's figure out how to build a pendulum clock. And along the way, try and solve the longitude problem. And... I just, sorry, I just got to interrupt you again. That is crazy. You know, you're like, you know, I need a better timekeeping. I have to invent a whole new kind of clock. Right. I need right. to figure out where I, where I am on the earth. I need to invent a whole new way of discovering where I am on the earth. Like, yeah. you can see that these, they really had the forces of, you know, arrayed against them because they just like, oh, you know, it's like us. You know, can you imagine like, oh, great, I need to invent a microphone. <laughs> Okay, now I need to go. Okay, great. I got to invent the internet to be able to get some information right. over to you. I could just see, you know, oh, it's so, crazy. So he went from there to, well, light. He's thinking a lot about light because that's what you do when you're working with telescopes and getting annoyed with the telescopes. And these were in the days when we still hadn't come to terms with the fact that light is both a particle and a wave. That just... That was something that took quantum mechanics for us to get past. So people were still having this argument. And he came up with a wave theory of light that was able to very successfully explain how it was that light got focused through lenses, how it was that light passed through different media. And then when he got together with Fresnel and they figured out how diffraction played into all of this, so it was so they were able to explain how life light passed around the edges of objects. They basically defined the first several weeks of what we learn in optics courses in modern physics. And so that was how he spent a lot of the 1670s was working on solving problems with light and polarization and diffraction and all of these other amazing things. Right. Again, back to being able to build a better telescope. Exactly. Right. And um, in the middle, he, he was one of the people who observed the 1661 transit of Mercury across the sun. He did that from London. Mercury does this fairly often, so it wasn't nearly as exciting as Venus. But nonetheless, yeah, the transits it was, of Venus. Yeah. He was also someone that was involved in building community. And he had the misfortune of being alive during the 80-year war and seeing the Na Napoleonic Wars and... This periodically prevented him from being able to go home. If you're in France and France is in the process of trying to conquer Holland, it, they, you're not necessarily welcome home. But wherever he went, he worked to help pull together the scientists to help build collaborations. He was constantly publishing and publishing in collaboration and publishing things like probability that weren't his own work. So... While he's responsible for making these great discoveries, he's also responsible for being one of the communicators during the scientific revolution that brought together different ideas to different people. And mm. that's a completely different way to be a major influencer. This is something we talked about with Planck, who many, who a couple centuries later was dealing with similar things as well. But again, you know, it's funny, that's the same to me as as needing to discover how optics works and how to, you know, that that it's like you, you get a sense that, oh, I see, collaboration is our problem now. 
So right. I need to fix that. I need to help everyone kind of connect together. So it seems like it's a real a real vein running through his personality where he clearly identified the gap and didn't care what it was. Yeah. He was going to figure it out and solve it and fix it so that then everyone could benefit from it. What an amazing guy. Now, now there's one thing that I kind of know is he had some theories about extraterrestrials, he right? He did. Yeah he, yeah, he was actually a very strong believer that there is life out there in the solar system. And in a book published after his death, he, he discussed his belief system. He figured that the other planets must be pretty close to what we experience here on Earth. He, he thought about things like, well, what is essential for life? And back then, water. That was one of those primary things. He figured there is sunlight. He thought about things like, well, what temperatures are all right? He thought about things like the thermodynamics of, well, Jupiter's probably too cold, maybe Venus, maybe Venus is too hot. He's one of the ones that looked to Mars and saw, as you can see in, in most amateur telescopes, that the surface of Mars isn't all one color. And that led him to think, well, maybe the dark, maybe that's vegetation. And that's a notion that actually many people held up until we started sending things to Mars and going, oh, hmm. shoot, no, not alive. Yeah, we're only 60 years away from that theory, you know, being widely held by many people. Yeah, It, it was a good theory. It just was wrong. Wrong. Wrong yeah. happens. But again, you know, had he lived longer, I can just imagine him inventing rockets and, you know, all kinds right. of stuff. So he he's someone that lived a fairly long life and he just spent his entire life thinking and collaborating and doing and bringing the community together. And the thing about someone like him is there were specialists. There were people who only did physics, who only did astronomy, who only did mathematics, who only did timekeeping. But he was someone who did everything and who knew everyone, who lived a long life and was thus able to bring together all sorts of different people to discuss ideas and build a real scientific community. So where did he die? He he ended up dying at home in the Hague and um was was buried there in Grote Kirk. So nominally you can go on a pilgrimage to see the place of his death. All right. Well, thanks a lot Pamela. That was great. I really appreciate that. And um I think I from what I, what I remember last time we were going to go on to probably the Galileo and and the Galilean mission. So we will uh sort of pick that up next week thanks again and thanks to everyone who listened in live as we did this as a google chat uh sorry for the uh technical hiccups uh i'm sure google's working on it all right we'll talk to you later family <laughs> talk to you later bye-bye this has been astronomy cast a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website check it out at astronomycast.com you can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. 
All donations are tax-deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.